Guys, this is part two of the episode. If you haven't heard part one yet, what are you doing here? Click on that and listen, and then come back here. For the rest of you, here's part two. So, how did you go about first self-publishing? Well, how did you first go about self-publishing? Um, I've got several books. Um, there was a bit of a revolution a few years ago where um, a lot of the smaller publishers, smaller e-publishers, were finding it harder to keep going. People were turning more to um, self-publishing. Um, it became much easier. And I had a few books where I'd had the rights returned back to me because the publishers had folded. And I thought, well, what do I do with these, really? You know, do I just, you know, put them with another publisher? Some mm. I did. Um, and others I thought, well, why not have a go myself? Why not just put them out myself and just see, you know, see what I can learn from that, you know, see what it's like, you know, because that, that can only help me with um, other contracts and things. If I've got some idea of the kind of work that goes into this stuff, mm. you know, I, I can learn from it. So that was what I did. That was why um, I self-published some of my my books. Mm. I desperately need covers now. They've been out there. So how long did that take? How long does that take you compared to going through a published um, an established publisher? Um, the actual process, because um, the edits and things take about the same amount of time. I've got a very good editor that I use. Um, because it's important that you have it properly edited, you pay a, a professional editor, that you have it proofread. I am rubbish at proofreading. I can't proofread my own stuff. I try really, really hard, but I just cannot see the mistakes. So I, I need somebody really that proofreads for me. I, I'm just, that is my, one of my skill set, and I know it's not, even though I do try. So you get it proofread, you find the cover designer, but the, that isn't too bad. And even the actual uploading of the, the, the book, once you follow the steps through, is doesn't take too long. The big part of it is always letting people know that the book's out there. Mm. There are millions of books out there. How do you let somebody know that your book's out there and is one of those books? Mm. You know, at the end of the day, you're not expecting to make millions from self-publishing. Well, I wasn't. I just wanted enough to cover the costs of paying for the cover and my editor and those are the bits, really, and so that the book would be available to people. Yeah. Again, that was my main, main thing. Yeah. So how did you manage to go out and start advertising? How did you get your name out there? Um, with great difficulty, for <laughs> perfect. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was more the fact that people knew about my other books and would look for my name, I think, more than anything else. Yeah. Since I left nursing, one of the first things I did, because I was aware that I had no clue what I was doing at all, is I did um, a marketing course. Um, I saw it advertised. It was free. So I thought free is always good. I like oh, yeah. it. And it gave me a level two marketing thing. Um, so I thought, great, I'll, I'll have a go and learn something. So at least I, I got more of a, a grasp of what I was was doing. I still don't think I do particularly well, or even <laughs> but at least I understand the principles behind it now. So that, at least when my publisher's saying to me, oh, 
marketing department say, you know, this is the best cover and, you know, we should go with this title. And I've got some understanding about why they're telling me this instead of thinking, well, I like my title better. <laughs> Even though, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. No. To be honest, like that's probably the most, well, when you're going into something and not knowing completely what you're actually doing, that's often more fun because you're learning on the job. I mean, it takes yeah. a little bit longer, but yeah. it's more fun to learn, do something and learn on the way than going knowing absolutely everything or thinking that you know absolutely everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, you must get this a lot, but like, who are your three favourite authors? I have to ask that. <laughs> um, it's difficult because I go through stages, um, I think everybody does in their life. Like when I was young, um, I absolutely loved Andre Norton's um, um, Witch World books. I still love those now. And I was really into that sort of um, fantasy, science fiction-y type writing. So Andre Norton is still one of my, you know, a writer I, I really love, even though you don't hear of her much these days because, of course, she's from that era. Mm. Agatha Christie I love. Um, Jane Austen, the, mm. the big names like that but there are also other people like um, Monica Dickens mm. books I really enjoy those books um and Gail Marsh her stories I really like there's there's different ones at different times P.G. Woodhouse is another favorite writer mm. um Jenny Cruzy um is another person whose books I like there are just different ones take my mood if sometimes I'm in the mood for romantic comedy sometimes I want golden age crime sometimes I want something more um mm. angsty but yeah. I read widely I still read widely now mm. so going back to the awards right 2007 one is not the only one you've won you won the romance novel of the year romance story of the year in 2010 by animal instincts yeah. that's really that's brilliant that's that's fantastic. So was that with the same was that the same was that the same publishing company or was that with, or is, or how did that come about? Um, different publishing company. Mm. The first book I won it was was written in third person. Mm. Animal Instincts was written in first person. Um, so completely different styles styles really. Mm. Um, but Animal Instincts came about because. My husband is hopeless. Whenever I find <laughs> a he's got no interest and no clue whatsoever. And his standard go-to thing was, has it got a dog in it? And I'd go, no. And then he'd say, you should put a dog in it. And he'd give me the plot of Lassie Come Home. And I'd say, that's not going to work. <laughs> and he'd go, well, put a parrot in, a talking parrot. That's what you need. A talking <laughs> and I got so fed up the one day of his useless suggestions. <laughs> and he knows I, I'll, I'll say this is I did, I wrote Animal Instincts and I put a talking parrot in it and I called it Dave, the same as my husband, and I gave it the foulest mouth of any parrot you could imagine. Excellent. Because this parrot used to be kept in a brothel and had to be rehomed and they couldn't train it out of his, you know, its innuendos and <laughs> language. So it was, <laughs> it was just one of those books, you know, that sort of grew and people's, still love that book I still occasionally get a letter for, about that book and somebody saying won't you write a sequel to that <laughs> I just love the idea that there's a book out there that's won a romance award with a foul mouth with a yeah. foul mouth talking parrot yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 
there is <laughs> to read the pages there's nothing there that's going to be you know that people are going to go <gasps> but it's that you know that like the things he'll, he'll sort of say the parrot will say and the fact that she has to keep putting a cover over it and nobody will take this flipping parrot off her hands you know she's <laughs> trying to rehome these animals nobody wants this this parrot but um, my friend who was um, my critique partner at the time still calls it the gay donkeys talking parrot book. Why <laughs> <laughs> so, gay, do gay donkeys? <laughs> because, because it's an animal sanctuary and donkeys are very sad when they live by themselves. Mm. They're, they're, they're happier if, they're, if, they're a, if there's more than one donkey. So we just put two donkeys in it and these two uh -oh. donkeys. And, and so she's always called it the gay donkeys talking parrot book. That's that's one. That's an excellent nickname. That's an excellent yeah, descriptor. Yeah, yeah. Like you can't really, like yeah. yeah. That kind of does what it says in the tin, doesn't it? If you describe yeah. someone the book like describe the book like that, someone then you kind of know what you're in for, don't you? Yeah, kind of, yeah <laughs> it's, it's just it, it was enormous fun to write. Some yeah. books you fly through when you're writing them, and you you know every minute you know you sit down and the words just come. Other books, it's like wading through treacle in diving boots because it just will not work out. And I've always wondered, would the readers ever tell the difference? And from what I've seen so far, no, they can't. So at mm. the end of the day, it's just me that knows that that book was like, ah, oh, to write. And the other one was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how have you managed to stay creative during lockdown? To be honest, it's there's been patches where it's been harder, um, simply because, like most writers, we're, we're people watchers. That's what we do. We love watching people. We love shamelessly eavesdropping on other people's conversations and taking like little quirks and different things that we see and hear, and they sort of work their way through our subconscious into what just we like, write. Just like randomly following strangers around the supermarket, like. Yeah. You know, I can very happily sit, you know, drinking coffee for a morning, just watching people come past. And mm -hmm. I used to keep um, a little book for years, which had got um, what I call the eavesdroppings in it, you know, random phrases that people would say that that would make me smile or make me think. And, and I think, oh, I must try and use that some some somewhere someday. One of my favourites, I've never used it yet, is this two girls who were having this um discussion the one day at a, at a bus stop and the one was talking about a row she'd had with her boyfriend and she said oh he got a face like a bear with a bee in his gob <laughs> <laughs> it just struck me as such a brilliant that's just such a great <laughs> she's got a good way of words whoever that whoever that, that lady is just cold, isn't it really <laughs> it's like that I might use that in general conversation, actually, if that's okay, if that's okay. Yeah, he's not mine. I borrowed it. I've never used it, but it just made me laugh. He's got the face of a bear with a bee in his bonnet. That's alliteration. <laughs> it's description. It's excellent. Yeah, that is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it was just one of those friends that made you go, oh, that's just that. Because you could picture that, that bloke, you know, like... I'm literally thinking of a bear right now and what the face would be like if Yeah, that's that's a pit job. That's a real fucking pit job. Um so you chose for the sitcom Keeping yeah. Up Appearances. Yeah. Why did you pick Keeping Up Appearances? 
Um, I think at the time it came out, it was that sort of slice mm. of of a particular section of, mm. of people, if you like. Mm. Um, and Patricia Radford is such a brilliant actress. I mean, yes, she, she is. She was just brilliant, and Clive Swift. That they they just worked together so so beautifully, and. All sitcoms, I think, revolve around the fact that they have to have people in them that you recognise as being true. Mm. You know, they're exaggerated then because that's what happens in order to create the situations for the, the comedy. Mm. But at the core of them, at the heart of each character, there has to be that part that you recognise as being true to someone you would know. Mm. And I think that's why that kind of work, because I think... Most people know somebody that that likes to think they're a little bit better than everybody else. Mm, that's that right. And, and there's that sort of gleefulness when that comes a bit unglued and you see them flat on the face. I think that's, that was the appeal of that particular mm. character, really. Mm. That I quite enjoyed. Yeah. Um, from what I've seen of it, because I've, I've seen bits of it over and over, over the years, it does have a lot to say about social about social class and how basically despite how much money you've got everyone has their own everyone has their own issues yeah yeah and it was it was kind of that aspirational mm. side of it that was that was quite appealing i think that that sort of um and of course she's such a monster of a character really you know but it was it was interesting because there's one line from it that I always remember, and it made me sort of think about the the character slightly differently. And somebody said to um, Richard, her husband, one of the other characters, "Why do you stay with a dicky? You know, because he's so put upon, he's so you know." And he sort of hums and haws for a second, then he goes, "She's very kind, really." And then when I thought about it, I thought actually. That there is that redemption in her. She she is quite kind in her own well-meaning, overbearing way. Mm. She's she's you know if her family wants something from her, she literally dropped everything and went to them. You know mm. even though she she was like oh please don't associate me with these people, but she was straight there and and like trying to do her bit. And I think that's if you're going to write a good character or believe in a character. You have to not make them all villainous or all good. There are all these little aspects, these different shades uh, of a character to make it even an exaggerated character like Hyacinth, that you actually need that empathy sometimes with, with that character and can see a different aspect to them. Mm, definitely. And it was kind of in that golden era of uh, of, BBC, of BBC sitcoms where you had the working class people who wanted to, who aspired to be, who aspired to be middle class, but we're slowly trying to, we're slowly figuring out that the grass is not always green on the other side. Yeah, and that's that's just how that that's just how life is. Um, yeah. If you, um, so Carol, that's all right. You you shuddered for a minute then on the <laughs> the, the internet. So <laughs> sorry. Um, that's so okay. if you were to remake 
keeping up appearances, if you had no choice, the BBC had given you a load of money and you had no choice but to remake it, how would you do it for today's audiences? It needs to be... I was thinking about this, actually, when I picked it, because the thing that always struck me in it is it doesn't really reflect the community that I grew up in and the community that I'm in now. Mm. It reflects a little bit of it, but it always struck me that, you know, I, I, if I were the script writer, yes, she's got Elizabeth living on the one side of her in the one house, but I loved, I'd love to put like um, a Sikh family in or, a, you know, a family from another culture mm. into the house on the other side and just to sort of shake things up a bit more and reflect more what's going on, you know, um, everywhere. Well, in my life, I've always been with people from all different cultures, right right from when I was small. And it, it just seemed odd to me that that was never reflected. Yeah. So I think I'd like to see more of that sort of mix going, going on in yeah. it. Bring it more, make it more relevant, really, to today. So people of different cultures in the same community, yeah, having the same, having the same sort of aspir- having the same sort of aspirations. Well, yes, yeah. I mean, one of my um, one of my friends, we were talking about this when I said which one I picked, and she said, "Oh, she said my mother used to love that program." She said because <laughs> she's um, it really appealed to her. She was um. A Sikh lady, and she said, my mother absolutely loved loved it. She said, because it got everything that ticked all her boxes. The mother adored her son. She said they always like prided themselves on keeping their house was beautiful and clean and and you know perfect. She said, lovely. She said, and she was always trying her best. She said, and and you know they're working hard. She said that that you know, and I hadn't thought of it like that until she said that to me. Yeah, because. That it was one of the sitcoms where you could you could relate to the characters even if so yeah. even if you didn't look, even if you didn't look like them. But no, no. What I think I do agree with today's with today's audiences. It would need to be updated in the way yeah. that you in the way that you just in the way that you described it. Yeah. Um, but it was really great. It really was great. And I don't. And honestly, I I really hope they don't remake it because yeah. they don't need to. No, it's a classic of its time, and there were the bits in it that you really love, like the fact that you never saw Sheridan, her son, mm. ever. Just just his regular phone calls where he would literally ask for money. <laughs> you know, but there were little aspects like that that were just just genius, really. Mm. So to wrap up, Ismail, thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. So literally all over the place, really. Mm. The books are available through Amazon. Um, my latest books are, as you know, they're um, historical yeah. crime set in 1930s Devon. Um, so they're a bit of a departure from my earlier books. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. I get to kill people in the That's excellent. Um, yeah, so if you like Agatha Christie, Miss Marple, if you like um, Midsummer Murders, Death in Paradise, then they're the kind of books I think you probably enjoy. Mm. Um, and as I say, you can find those 
um, under my Helena Dixon name on, mm. on Amazon. There is audio books, paperbacks, and ebooks on there. Oh, excellent. Well, now it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Keep safe. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries. <laughs>